Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And so we've come to it. We have finally uh, gone through all the, the different types of, of writing collected in the Library of America um, collection of Jefferson's writing, which comes in at about 1,600 pages, um, except the letters. So we're going to jump into letters. This, is gonna, this accounts for almost half the volume, and there are, there are hundreds and hundreds of, of letters covering his whole life uh, to, to many, many different people. We're obviously not going to look at all those letters, um, but we are going to look at a fair selection of them, and I'm just going to highlight what we see. This is also going to give us a chance, though, to go through Jefferson's life uh, from the beginning. We didn't say, you know, go too much into his biography. I, I mentioned a few things, and we should have a general outline of Jefferson's life. But um, we never kind of did the play-by-play -play of Jefferson's life, and this will get us a chance to do that. So we're going to cover Jefferson's letters over about seven episodes while really seeing how his ideas and thoughts and, and exchanges with other people changed and, and, and what he focused on at different times of his life. So Jefferson was born in 1743 in Virginia, of course. His father was uh, named Peter Jefferson. Uh, his father would live into 17. 57. Um, from 1760 to 1762, Jefferson began attending classes at the College of William and Mary. So this is his, his, kind of his college education. He studied under a man named William Small, who was a Scot. Um, and of course, Jefferson would be, be influenced by, by the Scottish Enlightenment throughout his life. You know, figures like Adam Smith. Or David Hume, or people like this, uh, of course, were key in the the British contributions to the Enlightenment. They were the the key thinkers of the of the so-called Scottish Enlightenment. And the first letters we have um, collected here by Jefferson are really from his from his youth. They're letters to friends and to uh, uh, people he's associated with. We have one written when he, the earliest one we have was written when he was sixteen. One he wrote when he was eighteen, though, called uh, to. Well, don't have names. Uh, the editor here gives them names, but uh, to John Page, who was a friend of his, is is very interesting, and it seems to deal a lot with his his kind of youthful adolescence anxieties. He writes a lot about kind of being tormented by the devil and things. So that's that's a that's a nice little window into some of his personal feelings and anxieties. The first letter, though, I, I really want to focus on was was written in 1771. Uh, to Robert Skitworth, and the editor here just gives the name a gentleman's library, and this was written actually after Jefferson's education was was more or less complete. Uh, so, you know, he started studying law in 1762, and he would study law until 1767. He begins practicing law in 1767. He actually begins building Monticello in 1769. By that point, having inherited uh, his father's father's estate and, and having the money through his law practice begin to develop his own uh, his own I want to say the word homestead because of course it was worked by worked by slaves but you know he begins um, planning that he served in the Virginia House of Burgesses which was the colonial legislature uh, from 1769 until 1776 uh, during that time he would serve in the Continental Congress as well so this letter was written during the beginning of his career, just a couple, four years after he started his law practice and after he already was starting to establish himself in Virginia politics, being even elected to the House of Burgesses. Um, and I am actually very interested in, in several different letters 
in this section of his life. We're going to go through 1785 today, where he talks about education and what it takes to be an educated person. And it seems his really idea about education is really boils down to just surrounding oneself with books. And I think one thing we learn when we look at this is just to how, to how much Jefferson did believe that what people really read really mattered and really connected to, to one's virtue. Um, not an uncommon idea, of course. Uh, certainly religious people had this feeling too. You know, if you were to read pornographic novels, this leads you down the road to vice and degeneration. If you read the Bible and virtuous you know, stories, religious spirit quests, that kind of stuff, you're going to have a better uh, and more virtuous life. But here's what Jefferson writes in this letter to Robert Skipworth. Uh, Everything is useful which contributes to fixing the principles and practices of virtue. When any original act or charity or gratitude, for instance, is presented either to our sight or imagination, we are deeply impressed with its beauty and also feel a strong desire in ourselves between charitable and graceful acts also. On the contrary, when we see or read if any atrocious deed, we are disgusted by its deformity and conceive an abhorrence of vice. Now every emotion of this kind is an exercise in our virtuous disposition." End quote. Now what's key here is he doesn't say don't read the non-virtuous stuff because that can also awaken one's, one's sense of morality and virtue and empathy if they, if they see horrible uh, things. Uh, documented. A lot of this is an enclosure, though, of, of different books he recommends, and, and um, you know, it starts out fine arts, a lot of uh, Milton, of course, a lot of poets, uh, a lot of a lot of English poets, uh, some of the Rousseau's poetry and writing. Um, I don't recognize all these. He does have uh, Smith's theory of moral sentiments, I, I should mention, so it, it su- highly suggests that he had read Smith's uh, one of Smith's most important works, The Theory of Moral Sentiment. Uh, a lot of Montesquieu, Locke, of course, on government, Locke on the mind, uh, Berkeley, a lot of the classics on religion. Not so much history. Um, just, just some brief history of, of England and America. Uh, Franklin's book on electricity here. So there's one or two Americans represented in this list. Um, but it's a nice, it's a, it's a nice classical education being presented. But also a lot of modern texts at the time, modern texts and modern debates. So he uh, certainly was an eclectic reader, um, and it's you know it was his library. What was that was the foundation for the the Library of Congress. So, anyways, it's just an interesting little snapshot at, at how he thought about uh, literature and learning and what people should have around them and surround themselves with. Oops, sorry about that. I, my sound started giving me trouble again, so I am switching to to setting two on my my microphone, which uh, changes the sound quality a little bit, but but doesn't have that same static sometimes. Um, anyways, let's let's go back to Jefferson's biography a bit and 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 really talk about his personal life, the most important events in his personal life. Uh, so he's serving in the House of Burgesses, seventeen sixty nine to seventeen seventy six. Um, it's during this time that that he marries. In 1772, he marries Martha, his wife, become Martha Jefferson. And that same year, Martha, his his daughter, is born. So Martha, her full name was Martha Wales Skelton. She was 23 years old at the time that she married Thomas Jefferson, and she was a widow, but she was also heir to a whole bunch of money. So as you probably know, most of Jefferson's money came from from Martha, from his, from his wife, and he would inherit that stuff in the next year. 
Um, just the dates here are a little bit fun to, to think about. Um, uh, he marries her on January 1st. Martha, his first daughter, who, who is known as Patsy in a lot of his letters, uh, and it's kind of his nickname for her, was born on September 27th. So you can do the math that, that you know, if this was... That's exactly nine months, right? So there was really no delay between his um, his marriage and the and the birth, but but uh, apparently not a shotgun marriage, from what we can tell here. Um, so it's in it's in seventeen seventy three that Jefferson inherits uh, all this property and these slaves from his father in law, who dies. And under American law at the time, when you know, married women didn't own property, right? The property went to their their husbands, and that would be remain American law until the until the eighteenth until the nineteenth century. Later in the nineteenth century, um, so this this accounts. You may have heard of the this, the situation. I think it was in New Jersey where single women with property could vote for a while. Uh, that was the case, and then it was undone later on. But that only single women qualified for that because they're the only ones who would have actually had property. Um, anyways, in, what does he inherit? Well, he inherits all these slaves and, and this land and this property, but he also inherits the Hemings family, right? And so we should talk about Sally Hemings here. Sally Hemings um, is, is Martha's half-sister. Um, uh, Martha's father had relations with one of his slaves, and the product of that relationship was, was Sally Hemings. So Sally was herself, I think, only one quarter black or... Yeah, I think she was one quarter, maybe even one eighth black. So there's a lot of of, um, of sexual relations between Sally's um, ancestors and 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 this this family. Um, you know, and of course, given the nature of slavery, there's really no other way we can qual- um, discuss these things except as rape. At least that has to be our baseline assumption about the these relationships and I, i'm going to include sally's sally and thomas jefferson's relationship in that um in that judgment so anyways this is going to give him that wealth um he's going to have to spend about half of this inheritance paying off his father-in-law's debts but he's still going to get half of it and that includes the hemings family then in 1775 and 1776 while still a member of the virginia house of burgesses jefferson will begin attend will attend the continental congress as a delegate from virginia so there's one letter I, I rather enjoyed reading here, uh, published, I keep saying published, I'm so used to saying published with these things, but um, written in 1775 in Monticello to John Randolph. And here he talks about uh, reconciliation. This is before Thomas Paine, this is before the Declaration of Independence, of course, but it's about five months before Thomas Paine's Common Sense comes out, and that's really what's going to push the American people to a position of independence. So there's still talk about reconciliation on, but fighting's already broken out too. So it's interesting to know what is Jefferson's point of view about reconciliation at this time when it's still in the air. Um, and of course, he wrote, wrote that uh, summary of the rights of British America, which still talks about British America and still seems to talk about rights of, of Englishmen in terms of American political rights. Here's what he writes. Quote, if indeed Great Britain, disjointed from our colonies, be a match for her most potent nations of Europe with the colonies thrown into their scale, they may go on securely. But if they are not assured of this, it would be certainly unwise for trying the event of another campaign to risk our accepting a foreign aid, which perhaps may not be attainable, but on condition of everlasting evolution from Great Britain. 
This would be thought a hard condition to those who still wish for reunion with their parent country. I am sincerely one of those and would rather be dependent on Great Britain properly limited than in any other nation on earth or on no nation. So let me stop there before going on. What he's essentially saying here is that a free America would be a big boon to these other European competitors. You know, wink, wink, it's France um, that is, is on the horizon here. And then independence would then put the United States in that sphere. It's really interesting that later in his career, he's going to be such an advocate of a strong alliance between the United States and France and so hostile to Great Britain that his opinion on this seriously changes. But let me finish the paragraph. Going on, um, but I am one of those two who would rather than rather than submit to the rights of legislating for us, assumed by the British Parliament, and which late experience has shown they will so cruelly exercise, would lend my hand to sink the whole island in the ocean. End quote. So he says, you know, in an ideal world, I'd rather be part of Britain. But given the reality of of Parliament's actions, he's he's voting for independence. So he's already seen independence as a better option at this point in his career. And then just one more thing about this letter to, to John Randolph. He begs for books at the end in a postscript. He says, my collection of classics and books of parliamentary learning practically is not so complete as I wish. As you're going to go into the land of literature and books you may be willing to dispose of, you know, and replace them with better editions. You know, he basically says, you know, bring me whatever books you don't need anymore. I would love to have some of them. So um, jumping ahead to 1776, uh, this letter was written in August. It's to a man named Edmund Pendleton. And I couldn't find out who all these people were. Uh, you know, the, the big ones are, are obvious. But this letter is on the Virginia Constitution, which we, of course, read his draft of the Virginia Constitution, which wasn't adopted. And he talked about it several times in other writings. So we have a rough idea of what's in, involved in this, in this particular document. And it's just another... I'm just what I, I don't want to really go over those points because I did it in previous episodes. You know, it's it's a really kind of interesting constitution. Maybe not ideal. Maybe it's a bit rough around the edges, but it's it's principles are, are so strongly stated in there that it, it seemed to be really on Jefferson's mind that this is really his vision of, a, of an ideal government, at least for for Virginia. Um, but just to to. Um, just a reminder of how important these principles were, whether it was general suffrage, whether it was ending slavery and expelling um, uh, the, 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 that would then be former slaves, criminal justice reform, all these things we looked at in some of his earlier writings. These were really his agenda while he was uh, in the Virginia Assembly and while he was kind of hashing out what the Virginia's government would, would be. Um, by the way, he... He, he would serve in the Virginia House of Delegates from 1776 to 1779 before becoming a wartime governor in 1781. So it's during this time we do all that legislative activity we talked about in previous episodes. I'll just make brief mention of his 1777 letter to John Adams, simply because this was his first letter to him. He had, of course, um, conversed with, Jefferson, uh, with Adams before in the, as members of the Continental Congress, but this is apparently his first letter. He was written when he was 33. This is very important for people who have studied Jefferson's life because they would correspond to the end of their lives. Uh, you know, I think Adam's last words were basically referencing Thomas Jefferson. So um, they died on this. Yeah, they died on the same day, July 4th, uh, 1826. So it's kind of a dramatic story and a lot of people like it. Um, this particular letter doesn't that have that much uh, of interest. It's you know, it's dealing with different kind of politics about the Continental Congress and not uh, 
Nothing too juicy, but it is historically significant as the first of what will be many, many letters uh, between the two. Now, one of these documents uh, written, one of these letters written in 1779 is quite important, I think. It's, it's to Patrick Henry, and Patrick Henry at the, at the time was the governor of Virginia. Well, I mean, actually, he was the first governor of Virginia, serving from 1776 to 1779. Jefferson would be governor for just one year in 1781. So anyways, Jefferson's writing to Patrick Henry about various military affairs, uh, everything from, uh, well, the heart of this is, is about housing for, for officers and moving people around and soldiers around. He seems not to want the soldiers of Virginia to not go that far, and he makes um, a general case about the, about, I guess, the the trouble with separating soldiers and officers. He seems to be hinting at, it seems to me, a little bit of, the, of, of a more democratic army, which is a closer relationship between officers and soldiers. Um, and he writes at one point, uh, kind of hinting at comparing this to the treatment of prisoners of war or, or, or the state of being a prisoner of war. Quote, but is an enemy so execrable that though in captivity his wishes and comforts are to be disregarded and even crossed? I think not. It is for the benefit of mankind to mitigate the horrors of war as much as possible. The practice, therefore, of modern nations of treating captives' enemies with politeness and generosity is not only delightful in contemplation, but really interesting to all the world, friends, foes, and neutrals. And then he goes in with this proposal, which has to do with the fact that a lot of these officers have, have essentially rented houses and spent a lot of time and investment in that. It would be unfair to, to just arbitrarily uh, move them from that. I don't know. I, just, I was just think, thinking a lot about just how difficult the whole provision of militaries were, my moving them, how much uh, just conflict and stress went into the the these mundane logistical issues of, of war. Of course, there's still uh, a big part of it, but I can't imagine Congress people going into this much detail about these things. You know, we, we kind of outsource these decisions to bureaucrats and, and people who make it their career to deal with the logistics of, of soldiering and things. Um, but there is stuff in here, if you're interested in the, the amendment to the Constitution about, you know, soldiers won't be quartered, um, is that, you know, this seems to have been an issue during the, for the Continental Army of, of just where to house these people in different places. And that's something that Jefferson's a bit concerned about. All right, so the next letters we're going to get really deal with uh, Jefferson as a wartime governor. So he's governor, you know, at the time that the Battle of Yorktown is fought, the Yorktown campaign, uh, when the Continental Army, when George Washington is in Virginia, as is a big chunk of the British Army. So if you didn't know that, that's a, just an interesting thing to, to keep in your memory about Thomas Jefferson is that he was, he was the governor of Virginia at the time when the, the great siege of Yorktown uh, took place. And so we're not surprised then when he writes letters to, to Lafayette. And we have uh, his letter welcoming Lafayette to, to Virginia. And we also got his letters to the commander-in-chief, to George Washington. Uh, and this one was dated 1781, um, written from Charlottesville, the capital of Virginia, in May 28th. So that's before the Yorktown campaign even, even begins. And he talks about the threat of the military forces in Virginia and, and just giving him information about uh, Indian activities or, or where, the, where, where the enemy is. So he's, he's kind of just 
you know, letting Washington know what is needed in, in Virginia. But it's just a nice win, little window into Jefferson's life as a wartime, as a wartime uh, governor. He actually makes a personal plea for Washington to, to come and help, saying, Were it possible for the circumstances to justify in your excellency a determination to lend us your personal aid, it is evident from the universal voice that the presence of their beloved countrymen, whose talents have so long been successfully employed in establishing the freedom of kindred states, to whose persons they have still flattered themselves, they retain some rights and have even looked up, looked up as the denier resort in distress. That your appearance among them, I would say, would restore full confidence of salvation and would render them equal to whatever is not impossible. End quote. Uh, a little bit of nice flattery there, of course, would, would satisfy someone like, like George Washington. Uh, the very next letter in the collection is, is good, too. This was written after Jefferson was no longer governor. And it's called The Limits of Public Duty, at least according to the editors here. That, that's the theme of it. And it's to James Monroe, of course, future president of the United States. Also a Virginian. And he's got a really kind of, I, th I think, wise attitude towards uh, public service here. Something, of course, is very far from our reality. Uh, and maybe it's not practical. Maybe there are downsides to what he's offering here, given that, you know, Government is, is hard work and, and you have to have a certain knowledge and and there's something to be said about keeping people in office who, who have a, who have a particular knowledge and, and skill set and not just throw people out recklessly. That said though, Jefferson's point here is that you know to be bound to public service for one's whole life, uh, to be sort of an icon that, that that people keep electing and putting up to, to lead them is a bit of a form of slavery or servitude. Maybe that's a better word. He uses the word slavery, though. But maybe servitude is a better word for it. But a kind of service to the people. And it, it shackles the, the public servant. And so some rotation in public service is, is preferable than, than kind of perpetual uh, you know, service. Not only because you're going to get out of touch and you're going to not be as reflective of the needs of the people anymore. You're not going to, it's not even about power necessarily. It's just about the, you know, the trap of that. And it's, it's from the point of view of someone who maybe is already feeling this um, anxiety, right? I, I, I get the sense that he's actually talking about retirement here. Um, he's going to be then pulled into the diplomatic corps and then he's going to get pulled into the secretary of state. Then he's going to get pulled into the presidency. Maybe he was eager for that. I'm not sure, but you know, he, I wonder if there's a, a, a part of Jefferson that always wanted to kind of just go back to Monticello and, and, and kind of live his life there. He says this, Nothing could so completely divest us of that liberty as the establishment of the opinion that the state has a perpetual right to the services of all its members. This to men, a certain way of thinking would be to annihilate the blessings of existence, to contradict the giver of life who gave it for happiness, not for the wretchedness, and certainly to such as it was better than they had never been born. However, with these, I may think public service and private misery inseparably linked together. I have not the vanity to count myself among those who the state would think worthy oppressing with perpetual service. I have received a sufficient memento to the contrary. <laughs> I don't know what that memento is, uh, what, why he thought that the public would not want him anymore. But knowing the rest of Jefferson's life, knowing that his retirement would not come till, till 1809, uh, What's that? Uh, Thirty years after uh, this document was written. Um, so, back to Jefferson's personal life um, briefly. After serving in gov as a governor, uh, he he kind of goes into a, a, a short term retirement, uh, just for a couple of years, 
And it's during these years that, that Martha dies, his wife dies. Uh, that's in 1782, and he's, he's absolutely devastated by it. We don't have too many letters referring to that. Uh, we have one to a man named Chasselot, a, a French person. He says, uh, talks about, he's, he's writing about, the, he's responding to a letter, and he writes, It found me a little emerging from the stupor of mind which has rendered me dead to the world, as she was whose loss occasioned it. And that's all he says in any of these, these letters about the death of, of, of Martha. But he has a couple letters to, to Martha, his daughter, uh, both of which are, are advice to a young daughter and uh, as someone who's from time to time interested in this question of, of educating girls. I, I had to read this one very, very closely to see what Jefferson's advice to, to education. So uh, here is the schedule he proposes for, for Martha. I contrast this with when he gives advice to, to boys and to men about how to get an education. It's kind of just read books, just surround yourself with books. Uh, his advice to, to Martha is as such. From 8 to 10 o'clock, practice music. From 10 to 1, dance one day, draw another. 1 to 2, draw on the day you dance, write a letter the next day. 3 to 4, read French. 4 to 5, exercise yourself in music. 5, till bedtime, read English and write. And then he says, basically, communicate this plan to your governess, and, and that's how it is. Um, so it's about his education, but it's just fun, fun to read that. Um, he, he gives another letter to Martha where he talks more about death, which maybe is a bit hinting at how he's feeling about the death of, of his wife. He writes to her, You will feel something within you which will tell you it is wrong and ought not to be said or done. This is your conscience and be sure to obey it. Our maker has given us all this faithful internal monitor. And if you always obey it, you'll always be prepared for the end of the world or for a much more certain event, which is death. This must happen to all. It puts an end to the world as, as to us. And the way to be ready for it is to never do a wrong act. End quote. A kind of good advice. I mean, even if you're not religious, it, this, this, this advice I think has uh, some, some value. So Jefferson's return to public life takes place in 1783 and 1784, where he serves in Congress briefly. And in 1784, he is kind of put on the commission by um, uh, essentially to deal with the Western territories. Right. So he's going to be instrumental in producing one of the great legislative achievements of the Confederacy period, uh, the Confederation period, I mean, um, and that would be the Northwest Ordinances. And so we looked at some documents before where we talked a little bit about this. Uh, we do have a letter here to George Washington dated uh, March 1784, which is mostly on the, the commerce in the West. And I am just kind of floored by this document. Well, maybe not entirely, but how prophetic it is in seeing the West as a center of commerce, and he suggests the need for public improvements, the need for investment in things like uh, uh, rivers and canals and, and all that stuff. He doesn't quite, I mean, he's not a line-for-line line prophet, but you, you can just tell that he, he's making a case that this West is going to be a center of American commerce in the future, and these rivers are going to be key to that, right? And this is before railroads um, emerged, so he's... He's thinking, must be thinking canals. I mean, or you know, at least he he knows there's this richness of, of of rivers. We actually saw when he wrote in states of the notes on the state of Virginia that he was talking a lot about the rivers in Virginia in kind of similar terms. Um, so I'm I'm glad this document is is collected here because it does 
uh, so some of these contradictions, I think, in Jefferson's thinking, especially during his presidency, where not only is he going to uh, be an imperialist uh, and have an attitude towards Indians that, that basically saw them as becoming American citizens and being incorporated into the, into the, into the state, essentially as white people. One of these letters, I think I forgot which one it was, where he, he says directly, Indians are essentially equal intellectually and morally as white people. Black people aren't, but might be in, you know, 200 generations or something. Uh, I don't remember. I, if I come across it again, I'll, I'll mention which letter that is, but it's in here somewhere. Um, but this, this letter to George Washington really does sort of predict the future of what the West would become. Now, another letter to Washington uh, was just later that same year, just a month later, uh, which is about the society of the Cincinnati, which is really something I didn't know about. Like, um, I'm sure I maybe heard about it at one point, but I never really registered in my mind. Um, the Society of the Cincinnati was the first like patriotic association. So Continental Army veterans formed it. And there's actually a, like a woman's auxiliary, which is like daughters of the Cincinnati. And I guess to be a member of this, you have to descend from you know, one of these continental soldiers, someone who served in the American Revolution. But it's, it's one of the, if, I think it's the first patriotic association in the United States. And Jefferson, of course, is, is quite pleased with it and, and, and advocating it and, and basically suggesting Congress should support their, their, their goals. So 1784 and 1785 are, of course, major turning points in Jefferson's life. In 1784, after he's dealing with the West, he gets appointed essentially uh, part of the diplomatic corps that gets sent to Europe to deal with various peace treaties. Um, of course, the Treaty of Paris was already signed, but there was all kinds of negotiations with other European powers that had to be worked out, whether it's trade treaties with Prussia, which Jefferson played a role in, or, or the alliance with France. All these different issues had to be managed. And so he's, he's sent with Adams and, and Franklin. And so he goes there with Martha and James Hemming. Um, now, I don't know if you guys ever seen the movie Jefferson in Paris. I've seen it years ago. And uh, my memory in the movie is that they kind of simplify this and they have Sally go with Jefferson right away to, to Paris. Um, but actually, he comes later. It's, it's actually going to be, uh, in I think, in 1787, where he actually misses... Um, his other daughter, uh, what's the other daughter? Polly, the other daughter he, he had, and calls her to Paris. And it's Polly who brings Sally with, with her to Paris. And of course, that's going to be key. The real reason he's bringing um, James Hemings along is he wants James Hemings to learn like culinary arts over in Paris or something. Uh, now, the same kind of legal issues that are going to uh, face Sally, I guess, would face James Hemings too. And I'm going to try to look into that um, when I talk more about Sally Hemings in the next episode to see what, what was that. I mean, the issue being that Sally was eventually freed by the French Revolution. Uh, the, the, and the abolition of slavery in France made Sally a free person, so she wasn't legally obliged to go back to Virginia with, with Thomas Jefferson, right? And this leads to all that speculation of whether there was some deal uh, maybe involving the, the liberation of her children if she returned to Virginia with him. Um, and then he's, so he's going to go in to, 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 to uh, Europe in 1784, and he's going to stay there until 1789. So it's a big chunk of his life he's going to spend mostly in Paris. And so a lot of the letters we're going to look at in the next episode are these Paris 
letters. I will also say that in 1785, he publishes the notes uh, on the state of Virginia. So now we get to a really interesting set of letters. And as I said, it's going to cover all of the next episode as well, which really involve his time in Paris and his correspondence with people in Paris, where he is going to be an ambassador, um, a diplomatic representative of the United States, but also a cultural representative. He would be the person people go to with questions about America or you know, their curiosities. Um, so one person he writes quite a lot to is this Chastelut. How's it? I'm not sure how it's pronounced. It's spelled C-H-A-S-T-E-L-L-U-X. Uh, he had written him actually before he ever went to, to Paris. Now, for that, we need Wikipedia to help us uh, figure out who this person is because he seems important. He comes up a lot in these letters. Uh, he was, so Francois Jean de uh, Beauvoir, Marquis de Chasselou. Uh, that's my best effort. Um, uh, sorry about that. Uh, died in 1788 in Paris. So he, he, he dies while Jefferson is, is, is still in Paris, right before the American Revolution. So he was a military officer who served during the War of American Independence as a major general of the French Expeditionary Forces, uh, led by General Comte de Rochambeau. Um, so that's how Jefferson came to know him. Uh, he was involved in the Siege of Yorktown. So he, he, his connection to Jefferson really comes through his service in, in America, and he continued the correspondence with him. And one is really interesting. It's, it's 1785, written from Paris, where the theme is, is really biology and degeneration among species. And basically the question is, does this happen to... To Americans, I, I guess the theory, and I don't know which exactly theory he's referring to, it comes from Buffon or something. And basically it's the idea that animals that get transplanted to different environments get degenerated, right? And, you know, if you understand natural selection, you understand why that, that might be, that they're, they're not really suited for that environment maybe, and they, they, they suffer in various ways. And the question is, does this happen to people when they get dis displaced? There's still very much an environmentalist view of, of, of human nature, right? And this is one way scientists in the 18th century tried to understand the diversity of, of physical features, diversity of cultures across the world was that's maybe it's the environment, right? So it's a cold climate, you have to work hard and, you know, dress a certain way. In the, you know, in the Pacific Islands where you just pick breadfruit off the tree, you don't really need to, 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 to sweat too much so you're a little bit more relaxed. And that leads to kind of different, different natures. But what happens if you transplant people from one to another? And um, here's what he writes. Your knowledge of America enables you to judge this question, to say whether the lower classes of the people in America are less informed and less susceptible of information than the lower classes in Europe, and whether those in America who have received such an education as that country can give are less improved than by the Europeans of the same degree of education. As to the aboriginal men of America, I know of no respectable evidence to which their opinion of their inferiority of genius has been founded. End quote. So once again, I, I don't know if this is a letter where it actually talks about slavery. Maybe it is, but um, he says several times in this letter that the Indians are kind of the equal of whites. Later on, he writes, uh, the North, where, uh, here it is. I am safe in affirming that the proofs of genius given by the Indians of North America place them on a level with whites in the same uncultivated state. The north of Europe furnishes subjects enough for comparison with them and for proof of their equality. I have seen some thousands myself and conversed much with them and have found them a masculine sound understanding. End quote. Cool. 
Um, so he's a little skeptical of this idea that that the Americans are like going to become a degenerated people, and part of his proof is the the, the Indians. So that's a really really fascinating little document. I loved reading that one. Um, me being a bit of a sucker for these Jefferson letters about books, uh, I want to jump ahead to a September 1785 letter uh, by James Tumit James Madison, where again Jefferson is basically writing up bibliographies of, of what a proper person's library should be. And he's, he's bought a bunch of books, it seems, for Madison. He's sending them over to, to America for, you know, for the public good back in, back in Virginia. So, again, the, the idea of Jefferson is it's kind of a, a drooling, excited book buyer while in Paris just uh, really warms my heart. And it, the list here is quite extensive, and the price is 1100 uh, livres. He, he does give a bill. Um, I guess he's not. He doesn't want to pay for it. Um, maybe that's Madison stopped to pay for it. Uh, to the same guy, Chastelou, Chastelou. Well, pronounce it different ways every time. I'm sure. Uh, climate and the American character. Is that what the editor calls it? Um, yeah, another kind of fun kind of environmentalism. I guess this is why I was thinking of environmentalism. Reading these was this letter, uh, September 1785. Uh, he's talking about regional differences in America and how it leads to different, because of different environments, it leads to different characters. So in the North, people are cool, sober, laborious, persevering, independent, jealous of their own liberties and those of others, interested, uh, superstitious and hypocritical in their religion. In the South, they're fiery, uh, voluptuary, in, indolent, unsteady, independent, zealous for their own liberties, but trampling on those of others, generous, candid, without attachment or pretensions to any religion but that of the heart. Um, I, I like how he throws in here a little stab at, at slavery, yeah, which is—it's always on his mind. He's obsessed with it, right? Um, it must be sometime in Paris that he starts his sexual relation with Sally Hemings. Uh, not quite yet, I don't think. I, I think it happens in Paris. Uh, yeah, I just had to look it up to to refresh my memory. The the first kid was the first Hemings kid was born in Paris. Died not long after the return to Paris. She would have six more um, kids with Thomas Jefferson in, in later years, um, but definitely Thomas Jefferson got her pregnant in, in Paris. So um, that, oh, there, also in this section, there's some letters to Abigail Adams, if you're interested. I didn't find anything in them that really struck me as, as super relevant to, to spend too much time talking about, but they're here as well. And I'm gonna keep my eyes open for other letters to Abigail Adams to see what he, he's writing to her. Um, so that's all for now. I'm having a lot of fun these, with these letters, a lot more fun than with uh, the kind of the more bland official writings of, of, of TJ. Um, so in the next episode, I'll look at 1786 to 1789, those letters, which covers the entire period in, in, in Paris. So during his diplomatic career in, in Paris. Um, so I look forward to, to seeing what's in them. I, I read a few of them already. Um, so that'll be that. So if you're reading along, you can just skim through the letters uh, that, that Jefferson wrote while in Paris. Maybe you have, you can find some on, online. Um, so that does it for now. Um, thanks always for listening and I'll, I'll see you next time. In the, in the meantime though, you can leave me your own comments, what you think about Jefferson letters. Have you read any of them before? Um, about his early career, anything you want to say about Thomas Jefferson, please, please let me know. You know how to contact me. Um, yeah, so I'll see you next time. Yeah.